Well, if you're a little nervous that we're going to dig deep into the Mets and why they're losing games and why they're not a playoff team, don't worry, because there's a lot more big picture stuff that you can talk about with a national baseball writer, which is our special guest on this episode. Hannah Kaiser of Yahoo Sports joins us. It starts right now. Welcome to the show, everybody. It's Doug Williams and Hannah Kaiser with you on this episode of the Shannon Podcast. And a reminder to subscribe, rate, and review Apple, Spotify, wherever you're listening. We appreciate it. And Shannon is brought to you by Verizon. It's 5G built right for the Mets from the network. More people rely on only on Verizon. And once again, um, Baseball Night in New York, weeknights at 6 o'clock, the show that I host. And Hannah uh, joins us, I don't know, maybe once a week. I, we don't really have a regular schedule. But um, Hannah's been a great addition to the show and we've added a couple national writers, uh, which has been really fun because the Mets season hasn't gone great. So it's been nice to be able to talk to people who basically are studying all the teams equally. And the other thing about Hannah is that she lives in Brooklyn and her apartment gives you the most like stereotypical New York City, like natural sounds. So we've already gotten a couple car horns in Hannah. It's early, but maybe we'll get some yelling. Uh, I'm just, I'm just curious to hear. Almost certainly, uh, you'll get a, a fire truck. I live close yeah. to a fire station, firehouse. I live at what I believe is the worst intersection in the world. Like whoever designed these traffic patterns did not stick around to see the havoc that they wrought. I constantly want to go out there and tell people, I have lived here for years and you are not the first person to be frustrated. You really don't need to hug. <laughs> I promise after, it's always like this. It's funny, like after living in New York City as long as I have, there are a bunch of things. I, I hope I never have to move into a new apartment because it's such a pain and we love our current place. But I have a list of things that now I'm going to look at if I do move, which is maybe instead of looking at like the appliances or the ceilings or whatever, just stop and wait for silence and see if there's a noise problem or, you know, maybe test the water pressure. Like these are the things that really affect your quality of life. Is there construction around you? Those are the things that matter. We live in, I live in what I believe, at least I've been saying this for a couple of years, because I think someone told me it once, the oldest continuously operated residential building in Brooklyn. So it's beautiful. Uh, you guys can't see it, but oh, you can, because sometimes we're on view. I have really a ridiculously beautiful sort of like crown molding everywhere, great wood floors. I have outdoor space, have high ceilings. I have a very strange chandelier that I'm looking at. And so when we, when my husband and I saw this place, we thought, this is amazing. And yeah. it is the loudest place on the planet. <laughs> I, unfortunately, like I, I know we're doing this via Zoom and some of our podcasts will be clipped off, but I don't think Jeff is going to clip off just you talking about your apartment. All right. Well, you'll have media. to trust me. You'll have to trust yeah. me. There's some beautiful, there's some beautiful she windows. Does, you have a very cool wooden door behind you or yeah. whatever that is. It's, and it's nice. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. Look at, um, those windows. Look at that. That's beautiful. So the, yeah, that is beautiful. So the way that Jeff started our rundown is welcome to a very sad episode of Shay Anything, which in reality is what it is. Um, it's, you know, the Mets are officially eliminated. They got swept by the Brewers. Just it feels like they were pushing towards a playoff spot, never really got there. And now it's just become uh, a little bit even worse than it was. Uh, and I, I feel like, Hannah, we've had you on the show since the beginning of the season and there were high expectations 
what what do you think about the fact that we're here and that you know things didn't definitely not go according to plan so this is going to sound exculpatory and it's not <laughs> so this is going to sound good for the mets but i promise it's its own set of problems i think when the mets were maybe not playing well, but when they were in first, because it's an easy division or a unexpectedly easy division, I think we all sort of forgot that, that heading into this season, um, the off season was a mess and that it's really tough to go from, you know, total power vacuum, everything at the top is changing to being on a level playing field with teams. I mean, one of the things that's really hard to keep in mind when you are sort of only following one team and you see their expectations and you see the players that they're signing is that like there are 29 other teams that are also trying to make the best possible decisions. And for the Mets, I really do think that they were even before we got into some of the messier stuff this season handicapped by their off season that you know it they were you can you can't make decisions until you have the people in place who are supposed to make those decisions and they spent a lot of the off season making the decision to find those people and in some cases failing to find those people in the case of a president of baseball operations and so they have great players i mean i think they truly have great players and a big problem with this season has been a lot of those players underperforming but i also just think a big problem with this season is that they kind of they never had a coherent plan or cohesive plan and, and they never, you know, well, I'm sure we'll talk about more of this as we get into the details with what they'll do this upcoming off season and the, the top of the front office, but Zach Scott, who is no longer the acting interim GM, but who was for a little bit, his job was supposed to be to sort of build out this infrastructure, make it a more modern front office under Jared Porter who then we don't have Jared Porter. We don't have a president of baseball operations. Zach Scott had gotten to do a little bit of work. Like even if all, everything had gone really well, you're still talking about a team that's trying to pivot the way they operate in their front office while also playing out a baseball season. I mean, in yeah. the ideal circumstances, you're still talking about a team that changed its owner, changed its president of baseball operations, changed its GM and tried to implement sort of a new you know, whatever it was that they wanted Zach Scott to build out on the operations analytics side, all of that would have been brand new, even if everything had gone according to plan. And then none of that went according to plans. Yeah. I think it's a great point. I, I think I, even myself, not to speak for fans or people listening, but when you watch the games, you're not thinking about that stuff. Like you're not thinking about front office turmoil or the turnover you're thinking about why is Lindor underperforming? You know, Michael Conforto is in a contract here. I thought, you know, coming off of 2020, it would be the best we've ever seen. And um, even though that stuff matters so much, I think you get lost in the moment when you're watching a game, wondering why so-and-so striking out in a big spot. Why is Edwin Diaz not a reliable closer? Um, but you're right. Those things permeate, they matter. And by the way, even the, um, which may have been a result of all this, you know, Chili Davis, bringing yeah, in right. Quattlebaum. And, and like, that's an example of, Clearly, you had Porter, you had Scott, you have Alderson over everything, trying to hire a bigger name than basically both of those guys were. And Sandy Alderson never believed in the philosophy, clearly, of Chili Davis. The players did. They bought in. And then you fire him, and you put in a more analytical guy in Quattlebaum, who I said this last week, other than giving me my hotel alias for the rest of my life, <laughs> um, 
Mr. Quattlebaum, what can we get for uh, uh, room service, please? Um, I don't really know how that improved anything. I mean, it didn't clearly, but uh, so you're right that those problems kind of permeate and the turnover is so important to analyze. And I, I want to ask you about Steve Cohen because you mentioned them not being able to find the, the president of baseball operations. Sandy Alderson was supposed to be like, Andy has made this point in the podcast. He was supposed to be the one in charge of like, if, if they needed a, a new chef on the road, like right. that's under Sandy, everything. It's not baseball, it's business ops, it's everything. He ended up being the GM twice because of Porter and Scott and not just the president of baseball ops, but like, so his role changed completely. What do you think about Steve Cohen and his ability to now look at the biggest names that might be available for him for that job? Do you think that he has an advantage because he is who he is, or is he at a disadvantage because he's so public with his opinions, et cetera? Well, I think he's at an advantage because he has, because of who he is, because of his money. I think yeah. I, you know, I hope that Steve Cohen, uh, has taken this past year to, to learn what he didn't know about the business of baseball, because it's not just another business. I mean, no business is just another business. I, I don't, I don't need no Steve Cohen. I've never talked to him. I'm going to take a shot at him anyway, right now, which is that he seems like someone who a lot of billionaires have this. They think that, that they're, money is a reflection of their value as a human being. And they must just be better than everyone else at everything. And that's why they're so rich. It's just sort of, it's a, it's a, it's a one metric world, you know? And I think he got a little bit, I'm not allowed to curse his ass handed to him this year in terms of realizing that, that just because you've been successful doesn't mean you are ready to navigate what is a very insular world and has its own customs and that sort of thing. And, and I think um, I like a eccentric owner. I think, I think all owners should have to have Twitter. That sounds like total fun for me. All owners, all GMs, I want you guys to be out there. I want you to be accountable. I appreciate that. I actually think that there's a world in which um, Steve Cohen's willingness to interact with the fans and his uh, accessibility in that way is that's part of the sort of what makes the Mets unique. It feels like it feels like the Mets have always had a particular relationship with their ownership. <laughs> we'll put it that way that the fans they they are they feel passionately about the franchise as a whole and I like that for the team and I like that for the fan base, um, I think that whether or not that is what a person, what a Theo Epstein or a David Stearns wants to walk into from a business perspective is a different matter. But, you know, if Steve Cohen is as smart as he thinks he is, he will figure out how he needs to behave to operate in what is its own little world, which is the business of baseball. Yeah, I think... Uh... I think what Mets fans loved about the Cohen uh, ownership bid even before he got the team was a combination of his money, but also the fact that he was a genuine fan because that's the most ideal scenario mm -hmm. is you get a really, really rich fan who just wants to do this, not just as a hobby, but more than that. And I think 
Mets fans are willing to give him the benefit of the doubt 10 times over because of that, that they see him as one of them, that occasionally, yes, he'll be irrational. And occasionally, yes, he'll tweet out at the haters, even though he should be way far beyond like needing to stoop that low on Twitter's be like, where are the haters now? Um, I think they see a little bit of an aspirational side where they're like, that is so cool that he doesn't have to uh, really care. Like to be so rich that you, who cares? I'll, I'll, I'll do what I need to do to get this team in a winning uh, state of mind uh, because it doesn't matter what I do or what I say. I'm going to make grammatical errors on Twitter and it doesn't matter who's going to call me out. Um, well, I think, I think that's what we're seeing is he needs to learn what does matter. Sort of, you know, you're not so rich that you can do anything you want if the best baseball operations people don't want to work for you. That's sort of the, right. That's the push and pull that like, right. He, if he wants to operate like someone who can do whatever he wants because his money will buy him out of that situation, then why didn't we have a baseball operation? <laughs> the president of baseball operations adding into that's a good this point. season. It's yeah. clear that he's sort of, he's operating that way and that's fun and that's great. And the fans love it. And I, I hope for uh, our content's sake that he is able to continue that going forward, but also build a successful team. But I'm not sure that he will. I think that at some point, I think a lot of the, um, we'll, we're, I'm, I'm going to transition us into what I assume we'll talk about, which is, I think a lot of the, the biggest fish, the biggest names, the people who are bigger than the Jared Porters and the Zach Scotts out there, that um, they want an owner who's not going to meddle. In fact, what they want is an ownership stake. You're, you're Billy Beans, you're Theo Epstein's. They want an ownership stake. But in lieu of that or in the absence of that, they definitely want to feel like they're in control. I think, um, I don't know, I, I a lot of people who cover the team uh, more intimately than I have floated names like Theo and names like Billy Bean. But to me, this is like totally my opinion. Just, just what I, I would be not surprised if they are hired, but I would want to know what it is that Steve Cohen said to them to convince them that he's not going to meddle. Because if you're looking at it from the outside, you're thinking that's an owner who's going to meddle. And right. that's, that's the fan in him. But if what you want is a person who runs a baseball operations department is an owner who's not going to meddle, I'm not sure the Mets are for you. Well then, I hope I hope you um, can get the assignment of being on that on that Zoom if they do hire <laughs> one of yes. those people because I know you'll ask that question. And I did want to ask you because I I honestly it it stopped me in my tracks. Um, the Zoom after the Jared Porter firing, uh, you were talking to Sandy Alderson. You asked him a question because he was talking about that they they did what they thought was all the research necessary on his background. And, you know, it seemed like such a surprise that this could have happened. It was the Porter thing, right? Not a, not a Callaway. Yes. I'm sorry that for mixing it yes. up, but that that's just been, one. this has been uh, the year in Mets land. So you asked him, were any of the people that you talked to about Porter's background women and, and Sandy Alderson was just said no. And, you know, eventually he got into a little bit more, of the depth of that answer, but I thought it was a great question. I thought it was an honest answer by Sandy. And I think he's been for the most part accountable. And I want to know if you agree or disagree with that about his hirings and his uh, misfires here. But I think, um, I guess I just want to ask you a very broad question. How, how can the Mets avoid getting this wrong again? 
tough. To, I was thinking about that. I was thinking heading into this that they it presumably it's on their radar now and they must be thinking they must be asking themselves the same question how do we avoid making this same mistake because um it's not all their fault a lot of it is the industry because not a, the these things don't always get reported in a way that you could dig up just from <laughs> looking at someone's permanent record or or speaking to their higher ups or checking their performance reviews but that is of course the problem with the industry is that um that well okay so to back up yes i thought sandy was actually i i appreciated his honesty in that moment both in saying no that they had not spoken to any women but i also found the his elaboration uh to be very illuminating um maybe more illuminating even than he intended it you know he said well jared porter's never had a female boss which to be fair i think is not entirely true there is an assistant gm who's a woman at the red sox but also that that is its own answer. He said, you know, Jared Porter's never had a woman who was a boss who we could have spoken to, which um, one uh, may sound incredibly obvious, but there's no reason for that to be the case in an entire industry. That's, it's not like there are no women who are qualified to be bosses of men who work in baseball. That hierarchy is not innate. But beyond that, the that dichotomy in the industry, this idea where so often the bosses are men and if there are women, they are more entry level. And even if the numbers make it seem like there are a lot of women, they are all at that sort of lower level. And, and that if we want to figure out sort of what's wrong with both that layout and why they're moving up, I think we should be talking to people who have worked for somebody. That's, I mean, I don't know why we would expect someone who is someone's boss to have intimate knowledge of the way, particularly if you're hiring for a, a, a management role, if you're hiring this, we could, this doesn't even have to sort of be an issue of sexual harassment or, um, or that genre of inappropriate behavior. I would hope that what, if Sandy thought it was a good question, which I did too, that it, what he, if he thought anything about sort of how he ended up in that place, sitting in his kitchen on that Zoom answering that question, that it's not just sort of, well, how do we hire someone who's never sexually harassed anybody. I hope he thinks more holistically around what does it mean to hire someone to be in a position of power and what kinds of information would you want in making those decisions and think across the board, whether it's baseball or not baseball, particularly since so many of these male dominated industries are male dominated in the sense that the men are at the top. I, I hope we want to hear what those people are like as bosses. I hope we want to hear from the people who have been managed by them and not just the people who manage them. I, I think to your point, and I, I, abs, I, I, without knowing, I feel like I know that Sandy knew that was a good question because he's a smart man. And I feel like he probably did some introspective thinking about how he got there. And I, I, I do think it's interesting, Hannah, that we're talking about Theo Epstein as a potential name that, that is being floated. And, and, and Porter, and, and Jeff has made this point, by the way, he deserves the credit because he's been talking about this for a while now. We've been talking about Porter and Zach Scott, who made a mistake of an entirely different nature. Um, you know, yes, Theo is going to be a Hall of Fame uh, front office guy at some point. He may end up higher up in major league baseball for all we know that may be what's what he wants to do but how do you start that interview 
if you're the Mets, given the fact that you know that it's underneath him, that some of your problems that you're just now recovering from and still recovering from were kind of caused under. I think that's an excellent point. And I think, um, right, that the Sandy problem of this all is that you can't, we're not holding him accountable for the hiring decisions that he's made or at least been a part of, and he continues to get a pass. And I think you're right. I think he's a thoughtful person who's sort of trying to do right by the team, but there's no reason to bring in somebody else who that, right. The, the hiring is the thing that has gotten the Mets into trouble that with Porter and Zach Scott, and then you referenced Mickey Calloway and in, in somewhere in there, I believe, um, my wonderful friend, Bertiroli and Katie's trained at the athletic reported on other Mets front office people who I think were quietly fired that, that obviously there is a, a decision-making process. That's a problem. And you're right. It seems like bringing in someone who hired a lot of those same people <laughs> is just perpetuating the problem. That is the hardest one to solve, which is sort of sussing these things out ahead of time, being a good read of character, whatever it is that we think the bets have been doing wrong. That's, that's creating an endemic problem in this way. On the flip side, that's the argument against Theo. I mean, they hired Porter and Zach Scott because they liked what they had done under Theo and they wanted them to implement a similar processes or you know, structure at the Mets. And they presumably started on some of that. And then whether or not Zach Scott will be allowed to continue working on that process, I'm not sure. But I don't, yeah, the Mets are in a difficult place in terms of wanting to move away from the pipeline that has created these problems, but being left with uh, some measure of having started to build out a front office in that image. And how do you kind of bring in someone who comes from a different pipeline, but, or won't be saddled with so much of the same baggage, but is able to build off of a little bit what you were able to accomplish last off season, because you can't be starting from scratch you know, all right, what are we going to be as a team going forward every off season and expect to compete? Yeah. Uh, to your first point that you made on the podcast, I mean, they need some stability and what comes with that is not worrying about a person's reputation or how they are treating people in their workplace. I saw a lot of stories that took the angle of sort of how do the Mets change the culture or Steve Cohen saying things that, you know, we won't tolerate this culture, but your culture is your, your people. There's no, there's not a separate thing. The Mets don't have a, in, you know, an inherently flawed culture or whatever it is. It's the people that you hire and that like, right. No one is sort of perfectly good or perfectly bad, but the, the, the culture can change as soon as you change the people. You don't need to like, Learn, like if you know you want to have a zero tolerance policy for these things that's excellent but you also want people who won't do these things and that's sort of a more important like that 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 i trust that steve cohen wants to be harsh on as strict on these issues and on the right side of history and all of those things but i also hope that we keep in mind that like um responding correctly to gendered violence or sexual harassment whatever it is that that those things um, we often laud powerful men who respond correctly or who say the right things, but you've already lost the victim or whoever it is that like, I think we 
in the Mets situation, and this brings us back to what Sandy said about they're not talking to any women, that you don't see the women who leave the industry because of these things or the women who don't work for the team because of these things. So the Mets can sort of try to change their culture by, you know, coming down really hard on anyone who is guilty of such an infraction or whatever. But you're not going to have a lot of women who work in your front office if you're kind of churning through people who are guilty of these things. You got to get it right from the hiring because that's how you build a <laughs> that's how you build a front office where diverse perspectives want to be heard and and right. aren't just sort of sticking it out for the the whatever. And as you know, the the whole conversation, I mean, you know better than I, is a reflection not just like I think it's it's easy for us to say, yeah, like this is a Mets problem. The Mets have a culture problem. But in reality, think about it. They, they've had new hires make these mistakes, which means that they hired them from a different organization. This is not, the Mets have a hiring problem, yes, but it's a fundamental issue within the game of baseball that, yes, you can have a zero tolerance policy. Okay, that's fine. But this is going to keep happening as long as these issues are permeating through Major League Baseball and accepted within the sport. Um, and no matter which team hires these people, probably, right. uh, you know, make it, makes a mistake in judgment, decides that it's worth it. Um, it means that there were problems going back to another organization. So um, it, it's not just a Mets problem. It, it's, it's deeper than that, unfortunately. Um, hard to transition, Hannah, into <laughs> baseball from there. But I, I, I do think that ahead of... Um, us is the the very difficult off season that you've been kind of mentioning, which is, look, there are some big de decisions for whoever ends up getting this job. Um, let's start with the manager, and then we'll get to what I think is the most interesting player conversation. What do you think, first of all, of like Luis Rojas is not a perfect in game manager. He is a near perfect front facing employee of an organization. He's pretty accountable. He seems like. He has good relationships with the players inside the clubhouse. Those kinds of things he, he seems to be good at. The in-game stuff, I'm not sure yet. What do you think about that reputation and whether it will lead to another contract for a manager in New York in 2021? Yeah, it's hard to see him getting another contract just because of the on-field performance, even though I think you're right. I think the players do like him, and I think his relationships within the clubhouse are probably better than – you think sort of what if you just watch the games, but I think that, and I think, I also think that actually he delegates well. So a lot of the on-field failures um, player to player are sort of not necessarily his fault, but I do think we talked about the front office failures and the ways that those create instability and that, but I also think a lot of the failures have just been like literal performance failures, players underperforming what they've, played up to in the past, those sorts of things. And I think um, they already changed out right Chile for Hugh Quattlebaum. There's only so much you can do to, you, you can't change out your whole roster. And I think you shouldn't, I think you should have some faith in these players to play up to what they've played in the past. I think, I think a lot of that adds up to a change in the manager, even if you, between you and I, we think it's not Luis's fault. Does that make sense? Yes. And I, th I agree with you. And I think also in asking that question and listening to your answer, I realized too, that I have had that thought that 
if like I'm trying to think of a stereotypical old school manager, Buck Showalter, Jim Leland, Dusty Baker, even if if any of those guys had been the Mets manager, I'm you know I'm not sure the the thumbs down thing happens. I'm not sure the rat raccoon story happens. Right. Maybe if they had a more authoritative leader uh, in that role, who by the way maybe makes more money or you know maybe just has more of a foundation in the game than Luis does, which again is not his fault. But those stories um, might be easier to manage if you have somebody who really has fear almost within that group. And well, think I about think- it this way. Do you remember what Luis said about any of those things? I don't. I think that that for a New York team, I tend to not feed into the like, oh, play in New York. But you we shouldn't. Right. The, the Mets have had so many of these less serious mini dramas on field. And I can't remember Luis, what he had to say about any of them. I don't think that he does a great job interfacing with the media. I think often we're left to show up the next day and accost Francisco Lindor and Javi Baez on the field and force them to apologize or, or Sandy has to send out a statement, you know, that, that, that I think actually that, Rojas is missing from a lot of these narratives. We are mm-hmm. talking about Steve Cohen's Twitter or what the players did on the field or that, that I think that regardless of whether or not you can point to what Rojas did wrong, you can't really point to what he did right in a lot of these situations. Yeah. I think he's good with when his players are not playing well, explaining why that's happening for the most part, he, he's honest about his accountability and theirs and kind of without throwing them under the bus does a good job explaining why so-and-so is not in the lineup, et cetera. But I think to your point, he has kind of been like, I didn't realize what the thumbs down thing meant. We don't stand by that at all. We love our fit. Like that's, that's kind of the message that he puts Mm -hmm. out there instead of like squashing it. So we never hear about it. You know, that's Mm -hmm. really what his role should be. It shouldn't be anything we hear. It should be that those stories are that he has the presence within that group to 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 end these things before before they're even public. Um, by the way, you're listening to the Shane Inning podcast. It's brought to you by Verizon. It's 5G built right for the Mets from the network. More people rely on only on Verizon. So I thought it was interesting. And I brought it up on Baseball Night in New York with you. You correct me if I'm wrong. Wrote a column about the bias thumbs down booing the fans thing by talking to Mets fans outside of city field. And then of course, because it's the Mets, the next game they play, they walk it off. He loses the earring. Everybody knows the rest. And it feels like ever, ever since that moment, Hannah, like the storylines become different because his numbers have been so good. He Lindor has had a great month of September. Maybe there's a correlation there. What it, what do you think between the reporting that you did that day to where we are now? Do you think there's actually a chance that Javi Baez is a Met long term? Yeah, I think there's a chance. I think that it depends on whether or not the Mets. So we talk about Javi having had a good month since then. I think a lot of that has been it's not swinging at pitches outside the zone quite as much. He's like he's walking more. That's great. He's already he was already a fun, great, dynamic player. Um He's if he has sort of better plate discipline, that's great. It's it's interesting to think if Francisco Lindor or Javi Baez had a bad year, 
or about half a season, would we have said, that's just a small sample size, you shouldn't trust it. But then when they have a great month, we're like, oh my God, it's the end of the season, we should throw a bunch of money at it. So I think there's certainly a chance that they bring him back. We're going to get into the sort of Steve Cohen and how much money does he have? Because right, we have Robinson Cano is coming back on the books. I think that there's there's so many, we're, all, all roads lead back to who's making these decisions. <laughs> Yeah, for I the know. Mets. like you know, we have they're they're gonna have to, and then we're gonna talk about the CBA and when are these decisions gonna get made? And so I think from a strictly baseball perspective, you know, I don't think I don't think you don't bring Baez back because of the thumbs down thing. I don't think you don't bring Baez back because of the fact that he was struggling before that. I think you know he was a good player when he was with the. Like he's a good player before, and he was, and he's an even better player with the Mets if they've actually figured something out and solved his what, like swinging outside the strike zone. If he's going to walk at the rate he's walking now, that's great. If he isn't, that's great too. I think he was already sort of a good player. I think it's really hard to prognosticate what the Mets are going to do when you don't know who the front office is. You don't even know what the CBA situation is going to be. You don't sort of know. Just right. for the record, Andy basically refuses to answer these questions because he's like, I don't know who the Mets are. Right. Exactly. Like, it's, that, it's for the yeah. like, I, I just want to make you feel better because you have <laughs> your baseball knowledge being similar to Andy's where like you want to give an informed answer because you're a reporter, but you don't even know who the Mets are because maybe the president of baseball ops that they right. hire thinks that his 10 walks in September in a couple of weeks were not an indicator of the hitter he'll be and having paying well, 150 million for an OPS or, or lower than 800 is silly. I, I don't know, but like, we and just specifically, don't know. we don't know. I mean, we, we've, we're going to do the, the front offices at the roulette. We talked about the front office instability. The front office is doing stuff during the year too. They don't, they don't just make <laughs> off season moves. So I don't even know whether the Mets credit his plate discipline to something they've done or to a total fluke. Is that something, did they fix him or is he just having a great, couple of weeks there like did they did they fix something that we can't I know. see or it's sort of it's tough to predict in that way and it's also tough to predict the way i mean we've heard steve cohen talk or tweet about spending money and the you know the cbt is nothing to him or whatever that at least if he's going to go over he's going to go over it with gusto but right we have robinson cano coming back which is some amount of millions of dollars. And I don't know if we're operating from a place of like, okay, well then you got to play him if you're paying him or are we willing to cut him if he doesn't look good in spring training or, you know, like where it's, it's sort of, there's a lot of variables that, that are payroll level variables that are tough to predict. I think baseball wise, the Mets get that. This is actually the hardest part about fixing the Mets going forward is that I think that they put a lot of good players on the field and it is really hard to think like, are they just going to run back the same team that I'm so glad you made that point below 500. And you're like, well, I don't know who you, where are you trying to upgrade? Like it's, they have great players on the field. They're just not playing well. I'm so glad you made that point because I think the bias conversation again is like, yeah, I mean, maybe they resign him, but I, I don't know if that means they'll be good again. I don't even know if that excites the Mets fan base because and I was, I was talking to you about this right before we started the podcast, but I had a conversation, a long Mets conversation with a diehard fan over the weekend. And he was saying, well, you know, I, I think you bring Dom back because he might have a big bounce back here. I, I think the same about McNeil. And mm -hmm. I, I love Pete Alonzo. I think he's a good power hitter. And 
look, I'd love to bring Conforto back if they can sign him because I feel like he's a solid player. And, you know, we got DeGrom and, and suddenly you realize you just want the exact same team. Yes. So exactly. I think that's right. Why? I think that's exactly. And the bullpen's been like, he was like, yeah, Trevor May. I like Castro. I think <laughs> Diaz. And you realize, okay, why weren't they good? Because I, I really don't know the answer to it. And I've been, my job, like the, I earn a living on analyzing this team and talking about it five or six times a week. And I still don't really understand how they've lost more games than they've won, considering the fact that I don't even know what change I would make at every single position. How is that That's- possible? Yeah, I think, right, that's sort of what I was saying about bias and what do you attribute these walks to, which is like, who, from a fan perspective or even a reporter perspective who's not inside the front office, I don't know, who, like, who, which of these guys do you feel the most confident are going to have bounce back years? And that's got to be based on some internal understanding of their ceiling and what went wrong. I mean, it's sort of funny to think that, like, um, the only analysis that makes the most sense in some ways is like, what do you do with Marcus Stroman, who I think was sort of pitching at his best and he's going to be a free agent. And it's like, all right, do you want to pay for that again next year? That I know how to analyze. It's just sort of like, yep, you need a pitcher. How much money does he want? Maybe you bring him back. Like he doesn't have a qualifying offer, so he's going to hit the free agent market, but it's like everyone else you need some level of internal analysis to be able to understand. I mean, we're talking mostly about position players, but then you get into the pitching. Like, I don't know. I don't know what they think is going to happen with Syndergaard. You, you, are you offering Syndergaard a qualifying offer? Well, I hope that the Mets trust yeah, he their can't doctors. Throw, he and can't I don't throw, know. <laughs> he's not allowed to throw sliders or curveballs, and you're supposed to be able to make a decision on whether he's worth you exactly. know, a qualifying offer or bigger contract than that. I don't know. So, yeah, you're right. If I don't know if the Mets front office wants to consider hiring me, but I, the, <laughs> here's the analysis that I do. Jeff McNeil and Dom Smith were bad this year. They'll probably be good next year. That's that's just my that's the best that I can offer in terms of analysis. And again, if you'd like to hire me, you're more than welcome. And thanks to the Mets front office for listening to the Channing podcast. Last thing before we go, Hannah, and this is going to end it on a hilarious note. Um, are we even going to have a season next year? Like it is. What is your early read on what this looks like? And I know that's kind of an impossible question to answer, but I'm assuming you've spoken to more people than I have, certainly. So I think there hasn't been a strike in a long time. Well, there won't be a strike. Sorry, there'll be a lockout. I think we'll get a lockout. So December 1st comes. I don't think I don't think we'll have a deal by December 1st, which has been the current CBA collective bargaining agreement expires. It's December 1st. What we saw the past two years, we haven't had a labor negotiation in a while. We haven't had a labor negotiation with exactly these people because the union changed out their lead negotiator since the last CBA was negotiated. But we have the past two years of trying to play in a pandemic to look at, and that does not inspire a lot of confidence that they can get anything done without a really hard deadline staring them in the face. So I think the December 1st deadline, I think about it that way, the sort of what are the deadlines that are going to pressure these people to sit down and hammer something out? Because what we saw from the past two years is that given an open-ended situation, they are very unlikely to come to terms that they can both agree to. So I think the December 1st, the CBA expires, that deadline, not hard enough. So I think that that'll come and go without a new um, 
agreement in place uh, that I could lead to a lockout from the owners where they lock out the players and then we won't get any offseason moves for however long that lockout lasts, which just backdate that information to all of our conversations <laughs> about what the Mets are going to do. We could, everybody, everything could be put on ice to come December. Um, and so I think we'll get a lockout then. Again, all of this is very difficult to predict. The tricky thing becomes as we approach February spring training and then opening day, I actually feel like we will play 162 games because I think both sides at this point have so much money. I mean, there ha- the, the last time they missed games, people were just making less money. It was a less lucrative industry. I think that they are not so willing to miss regular season games as people think when they look at the sort of uh, tenor of labor. I, however, I think spring training is a very tricky buffer beforehand, which is sort of, you got to give them enough time to ramp up, but is that a hard enough deadline to force them to come to an agreement or are they going to let spring training or the the scheduled spring training start without a deadline and then try to figure out, all right, how soon do we got to get something done to get on the field whenever opening day is supposed to be? Good. So we have that to look forward to. (laughs) So you're saying that basically you think fundamentally once the regular season arrives that both sides owners players care more about regular season baseball being played than any of the issues that they will have been and will be negotiated. Well, I think the players are more willing to strike than they have been for a long time. So that's, I think the players, so much of labor negotiations speaking broadly comes down to the willingness of the labor to tolerate a work stoppage. And I think the past five years, um, and this is this is why people feel that 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 labor the labor situation has deteriorated. I think in some ways that the sense that people have that the labor situation has deteriorated is a direct result of the fact that the labor side, the players, the union, has been preparing themselves for the potential of a work stoppage because being prepared for that potential is the greatest strength that the players and the union side has. And so I think, they are better prepared than they've ever been. Not ever been. They, Marvin Miller was a hero, um, but better prepared than they've been in the recent past to tolerate a work stoppage. So we might get one. However, I do think I think we're getting. I think what we're what we're my just straightforward prediction is we are setting up for a very messy stretch between December first and opening day, in which. It, it mimics sort of what we've seen the past two years, the pandemic seasons of trying to figure out when do we got to get a deal in place to get the season underway. All right. Well, that's fascinating and uh, a good kind of primer for what we have to not look forward to, but really to dread, <laughs> because I don't know what we're going to talk about every day with that as somebody who hosts a baseball talk show, no matter whether games are being played or not, we're going to be doing like, what's the better fall pant choice khakis or corduroys as our B block in November. I mean, I just, I, I, it's <laughs> I just really don't. I mean, I just want it to be clean. And then I remember what it was like during COVID the whole, like, tell us when and where, th- Oh gosh, I try to block those things out, but thank you for illuminating some of that. Um, and uh, thank you for joining us, Hannah. This has been really fun. And uh, well, 
fun in some ways and kind of depressing in others, but really either way it, I learned a lot in the last 30 to 40 minutes. So thank you. And by the way, if you're listening and you want to know more about Hannah's work, you can follow her on Twitter at Hannah R Kaiser, K E Y S E R. And you can check out her work on, (laughs) on Yahoo. And she appears on baseball night, New York on SNY as well. Um, Hannah, thank you. This is great. Thanks for having me. Um, a reminder to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. We appreciate it. Give us a rate and review as well. And another reminder that Shannon Podcast is brought to you by Verizon. 5G built right for the Mets from the network. More people rely on only on Verizon. We will be back with you later this week with the one and only Keith Hernandez. We hope to uh, have you back then. Thanks for listening. <laughs>